Hi, welcome to Novel Finds, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books, our favorite books, and everything in between. We're kicking off our season four, and the crowd goes wild. We're starting off the season with a Jane Austen double feature. Featuring two author chats this episode. First up, Melody Edwards, author of Once Persuaded, Twice Shy, a modern reimagining of Jane Austen's Persuasion. Hello, Melody. Welcome. We're so glad to have you on. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm pleased to be here. Oh, of course. I gotta be honest, I haven't read Jane Austen's Persuasion, but reading your book, which is the modern retelling, really made me deeply consider it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, you know what? It's okay, because reading the original is, is not a prerequisite, but Jane Austen is the best of the best. So if you've got time, it's a great book. She really is. Um, and if it's anything at all like yours, I'm sure it'll end up being my favorite. So I'm I'm very excited about it. Can you give us a brief synopsis of your book and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Melody Edwards. I hail from Toronto, Canada. I've got a degree in English literature, which is probably where the Jane Austen obsession comes from. Not that we need an excuse. And uh, I went to work in corporate communications for a number of years, got my master's in communications. And then in the pandemic, I started writing novels. And my first book was Jane and Edward, came out about a year ago. And this is my second book now, uh, Once Persuaded, Twice Shy. And it is, as you said, a modern reimagining of Jane Austen's final completed novel, Persuasion. So I don't call it a retelling because I'm not quite beat for beat. It's more mm -hmm. that I, I lovingly pillage the characters and the plot lines and the themes. And then I try to have fun with it in modern times. So Anne Elliot, in my version, lives in the small town of Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is a real town here in Canada, right near the American border. And it's gorgeous. It's got a theater company that runs year round. It's got spas and hotels. So it's a real tourist playground, but it's also got a small town feel. There's farmers and local festivals and like everybody knows each other's and it's a really amazing place. And so Anne lives in that small town and she runs the theater festival and she's town counselor. And then the lost love of her life, Ben, from eight years ago, comes back into town. His aunt and uncle have purchased a winery and they're working with the theater festival. And so you have some forced proximity where after eight years and a horrendous breakup, they're back in each other's sphere again. And it plays out from there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, I'm so glad to know that this town is is real because it is just so cute in the book. I was like, oh man, I really want to visit. I mean, I'm in Michigan right now, so we're not that far away. Well, you're not far at all. You should come for the week. Come for a long weekend. It's lovely. We get so many American tourists there. Like it's just, there's so much to do. The shopping, the wineries, the spas, and just the town itself is preserved from different parts of different centuries that it was created. So it's really quite gorgeous. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. Okay. So speaking of Ben, who came in eight years later, I mean, lost love, but also kind of he's very swoony. So because Jane Austen does just very broody, but swoony men, do you have a Regency era book crush? That's tough. You know what? As I've grown up, my my Regency era male lead crush has changed as I've developed. Mm -hmm. But I have to say... 
It's going to be one of the lesser knowns. It's probably Henry Tilney from Northanger Abbey, which nobody really cares about. Nobody really knows about. But as much as I love Austin's other heroes who are dark and brooding and serious, Mm -hmm. Henry Tilney is fun. He's light. He's charming um, and he's just a really nice guy and he does the right thing in the end. And there's there's so much less drama associated with him, but he's absolutely charming across the dance floor. I love that. So then what is it that makes him swoony to you? Well, you know, I guess that he's just he just comes across as such a lovely guy. Like in mm-hmm. the beginning of Northanger Abbey, it's Jane Austen's terribly brutally honest with about her heroines. You know, Catherine Morland's the hero of that. And she's she's almost pretty and she's almost clever and she's mm-hmm. almost this. And really, she's just quite average across the board and a nice girl. And Henry Tilney falls for that. And he's just a lovely guy. He's protective of his sister. He's aware of how rude his father is. He doesn't really have the monumental steps of personal growth that a lot of Austin's mm-hmm. other heroes need. And he just thinks Catherine's lovely and he's terribly flirtatious. I mean, most of Austin's good guys are kind of quiet and brooding. And, you know, mm-hmm. I got a little soft spot for Henry Crawford in Mansfield Park, who's also very charming and <laughs> almost becomes a good guy, but ends up being a rake in the end. He can't help himself. Oh, I know. So I like Henry Tilney just because he's he's consistent through the book and he's always charming and he always does the right thing. Oh, well, I love that. I, I did start Northanger Abbey and I haven't finished it yet, but that was definitely like the opening of the book is just all about how, how she's an average person. I was like, this is rough. <laughs> Austin's always brutally honest about her hair, isn't she? Even when Emma's being a brat and Emma and Elizabeth's being very vain and pride and prejudice, she's always pretty honest about who her heroines are. Yeah, it's great though. So you've read all of Jane Austen's works. Huge Austen fan, read them all, read them multiple times, read the unfinished novels, read the Jane Austen collections of letters. Big devotee here. Oh, wow. So then, I mean, I was hazarding a guess that Persuasion was your favorite, but is it your favorite? Persuasion is my favorite. When okay. I was younger, it was Pride and Prejudice. But as I got a little older, it's Persuasion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about Persuasion made you want to write a reimagining? Well, there was the challenge of it. I, I love Persuasion. I love the book. I have seen multiple movie and TV adaptations. My favorite mm-hmm. is the 2007 ITV version, which is very swoony. I would recommend you check it out. Beautiful soundtrack for the longing looks across the streets of Bath. It's just fabulous. I guess I, I liked the challenge of it. You know, everyone goes for Pride and Prejudice and Emma, and those are brilliant books too. I love them so much. But Pride and Prejudice was probably her most mature novel. It's her mm-hmm. oldest heroine, age 27. I know that's funny, but it's the truth. And it's a book where kind of they've both done their personal growth already and how are we going to put this back together? And for a modern adaptation, it was really challenging because, you know, in modern times, we don't really lose track of people. We, we look them up on Instagram or Facebook or we, mm-hmm. we still have their phone numbers and uh, people hook up with their exes again all the time and people are very direct. So the idea of this, this old fashioned novel where they spend the original novel, they spend most of the novel not making eye contact and not talking to each other. And everything is just interpretation. He'll say something to another woman and she's like, is that directed at me? And then she'll go and do this. And, you know, you can kind of see him eyeing her from the corner of the room. And I thought that's going to be really tough for modern romance where we're kind of used to the hero and the heroine falling into bed pretty early or having mm-hmm. blow fights pretty early. So I'm like, how am I going to do this where they just don't look at each other? And what forced proximity setting can I make that I can contain them and keep the novel interesting? Like things need to happen other than mm-hmm. just their pining, although the pining's delicious. And, and try to keep this novel going. 
Well, the pining was definitely there. I mean, the anxiety coming from Anne was just, it was like chef's kiss. It made a lot of sense just the way that you ended up pulling that together. Did you find any challenges with the reimagining of a classic novel? I mean, it seems like it kind of fell together, but were there challenges? Were there things that you were like, oh, I really like this in the classic one, but it's not going to make it into this one? Tell us about that process a bit. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, my first novel was a reimagining of Jane Eyre. So I kind of did my learning curve on that one. It's tough because there are certain scenes and certain things that happen that are forced by Regency era manners or Regency era etiquette. And it's hard to translate that because, I mean, in the original novel, Anne is really submissive, subordinate to her father and her sister. And in Regency mm-hmm. era, yes, because a woman can't leave her father's house until she's married. But in modern times, it'd be like, why, why don't you just move out? Why don't you just leave your abusive family? Why don't you just mm-hmm. go get a job in another town and move on? So it was tough to create relationships that made sense in modern times. And it's also just, it's just finding other elements of the character. So in the original novel, Anne's very wallpaper. She's very oppressed. She's very doormat. And she would be because, again, Regency era rules, right? She's she's the unmarried, slightly older, mm-hmm. um, with her overbearing father, etc. But what I loved in the original novel is when I reread it a millionth time, she's actually incredibly competent in the book. It's just nobody notices. When they have to leave their family estate, she draws up the budget. She says goodbye to the tenants. She manages the transition. When she goes to visit one of her sisters and her nephew falls ill. She calls the doctor. She calms down her sister. When Louisa Musgrove has this big accident out in Lyme, she triages when everyone else is frozen with panics. I'm like, she's actually incredibly competent. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to take that side of Anne and that's going to be my modern reimagining. So it was just kind of looking for alternate, alternate. There's so much. Jane Austen writes such rich material. It's like, I have to leave this thread and pick up this thread instead because this will work for modern times. And it's just deciding which threads I can work with. I love that. And it definitely with Anne, she in your in your story came out as like super strong. She's definitely I mean, I felt like she had very much first child energy in that she is like always in charge, always like kind of the secondary adult there and just all of that stuff because she knows what to do. She doesn't accept help and all of that. But it's it's also really hard. Like when you connect with that kind of character and you're just like, oh, no. That's me. <laughs> that, that's. I was worried people wouldn't connect with her because she's so so competent. But I'm I'm getting from early readers. I'm getting a lot of notes like, yes, I'm the man. I'm the woman with the plan too. I'm the detailed list. I, you know, always that someone said I, they had a great phrase. I'm trying to remember it. The realization that being competent and being busy is not the same as being happy and mm-hmm. taking time for yourself. So I'm I'm glad so many people are looking at the character and saying, yeah, that profile looks familiar. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. It definitely looked very familiar. But it was still really cool, especially because she has such strong female relationships around her, like at the theater company. She has her assistant, Emmy, and she's hilarious. She had me cackling like the minute she showed up on the page. I was like, oh, man, the sadistic streak that just like it weaves its way through every single sentence that she makes and it's so funny. But then there's also Vidya who is she is the main costume designer. She's like the costume department and she is just like one of those artist types that's very supportive and lovely and and wonderful. And for Anne at some point to be like, I don't know what her goal is. Like what is the the reciprocation here? Because she just doesn't realize that Vidya wants to be a friend. Like she is a friend. (laughs) 
So how was it creating the relationships between all of the different females? Because it's not just those two. Like there's different relationships basically with every single character, every single woman in the book. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, my first book, The Heroine, was very isolated and she really only had one female friend. So this was mm-hmm. tackling something very different. I mean, female friendships I'm familiar with. I'm one of three sisters myself. And when we were teenagers, like everyone had their friends over and it's just house was packed with female friends all the time. Mm-hmm. But Anne's important. In the original novel, she has her friend, Lady Russell, who's sort of like a pseudo mother character. And it's Lady Russell who actually persuades her to give up her fiance, Wentworth. Mm. Um, and so I made that change where I, I made it her mother just because I wanted it to have more impact that her mother persuaded her to give up Wentworth. And there's this tricky thing in the book where Lady Russell's much older. Lady Russell was the friend of Anne's mother. And what sort of happens is Lady Russell just kind of uses Anne as a substitute. That becomes the new friendship because Anne's like her mother. Um. So I picked up those themes and ran with them. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to I didn't want to drop from our friendships entirely. In the book, Anne's got Lady Russell and she's got a Miss Smith who's an old school friend in Bath. And it talks about how Anne was not happy at her girls' boarding school, but she had this one friend. And this one friend in the original novel is is kind of pivotal to her unlocking the mystery of some of what's been going on around her. I won't spoil the ending of the original or my novel, but so Anne's ability to work with female friendships was important. And I wanted to have those characters represented in different ways. But with Emmy and Vidya, they're also sort of the suppressed aspects of Anne because Anne is so competent. She's so diplomatic. She's Mm -hmm. so self-controlled that I I love the idea of Emmy on her shoulder like a little devil saying, let's fire these people. Let's burn this place down. Let's just get rid of this all because Anne's so controlled. So it's kind of it's kind of her unspoken subconscious there. And then Vidya, yeah, just because, you know, Anne's sisters pass her over and some of the other women aren't kind to her. So Vidya Mm -hmm. is that representation of the friend that she doesn't realize is her friend, but she really needs and can really have. And, And Vidya is all love and emotions and and again that unspoken part of Anne so while Emmy's the ruthless side that Anne doesn't get to show at work Vidya's the heartbroken side that Anne's been suppressing for eight years so it's Mm -hmm. different ways for her to represent those sides of herself without letting them go oh I love that it was it was so sweet I mean the heartbroken part when Anne finally confides in Vidya about you know eight years ago with Ben um NVIDIA just immediately puts together a Taylor Swift playlist. <laughs> I was like, yes, this is this is how you handle that sort of thing. That's how you do a breakup. Your friend makes you a playlist. Yeah, exactly. And I love that at first Anne is like, thanks, Vidya, and then doesn't really listen to it. But then like on a whim does. And then just gradually throughout the book, she listens to more and more of it. And she like says the songs that she listens to. So I was wondering, is the whole playlist in the book or in your head, is it much, much longer? So it's tough. So, you know, with publishing deadlines, I wrote this book maybe two years ago now, and I did mm-hmm. not know that Taylor Swift's Eras Tour was going to take over and she'd be dropping all those extra albums during the pandemic mm-hmm. and stuff. So that kind of got away from me. Yeah, the whole playlist is not in the book. I did a handful of songs and I, it is my plan to post that playlist to the social to my social media because people have been asking me about it. But the thing is, Taylor Swift keeps coming out with so many more songs all the time. I didn't want to say definitively, this is the playlist. Yeah. Because every year I would restructure this playlist to incorporate. <laughs> 
a new song. Well, a living, breathing playlist is great. It's a living, breathing playlist. That's what it is. And I wanted people to be able to think to put in their own songs. For me, it's very specific. It's not the whole song. It's certain lyrics mm-hmm. from each song. And I tried to kind of denote that in the novel. And so people might be able to go look it up in the traditional Taylor Swift Easter egg style. And what made me think to put a Taylor Swift playlist in is there's one particular song and the chorus is something like, and I'm going to screw it up now, but the chorus is something like, you fell in love with a careless man's careful daughter. And for me, when I heard that lyric, I'm like, that is the thesis of the original persuasion. It Mm -hmm. truly, truly is. And so that was kind of, I wrote that on a piece of paper and I stuck it to my wall when I was writing the novel. And so then I thought, you know what, let's get more Taylor Swift in here. Let's just be transparent that that's what I'm doing. So that's where I went with it. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put up the playlist as I see it, but I invite readers to add their own songs and add their own, their own pieces of Taylor Swift lyrics to it. Oh, I love that. Especially now that she literally just announced her newest album coming out. Yeah. Living, breathing playlist. I can't wait to see it. So as you were working, what were your favorite scenes to work on without spoiling anything? Emmy is my favorite character. Emmy is Anne's subconscious brutal side, but probably also a bit of me, where she's just transparent about, you know, there's a, my favorite scene is there's a fight happening and she shows up and Anne's like, why are we here? And she goes, I sense drama. I came to see it. And then she gets out her phone to record. (laughs) That's that's what I secretly want to do sometimes when there's drama. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) So that was probably my favorite scene because there's a fist fight. There's, uh, you know, the town characters are involved. It's a pivotal moment between Anne and Wentworth. And then there's Emmy in there saying, can I put this in the company newsletter? <laughs> so it's kind of a culmination of the novel, but it's fun to write. It's fun to write the physical fight. It's fun to write the tension in that scene. It's fun to write the plot kind of, the financial plot kind of unraveling. And then you have all these wild antics. Um, mm-hmm. so favorite scene to write. But Emmy throughout is my favorite person to write. I just, you know, I kind of want to put her in another novel. Just keep her going. I think you should. I think she should show up everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Emmy's in every novel I have. She gets a cameo. Yes. Well, Jane and Edward had a little bit of a cameo. I gave them a little cameo too. Yeah. 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 You did some really fun, fun throw throw outs there with like Jane and Edward. And then the little bit where you're like, and Anne said, oh, well, this isn't a Jane Austen novel. I'm like, okay. (laughs) It's a bit of a fourth wall break right there. I, I can't resist the fourth wall break. I did it my first novel too, where, where someone disparages the novel Jane Eyre and mm. the heroine says, what do you mean it's not relevant? I'm living it right now. I don't know why I have to do that. I just feel the need to acknowledge this is the source material and have the heroines look at it because eh, most people, I think most women have brushed up against Jane Austen or one of the Brontes before. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they wouldn't recognize the plot. So I just can't help that little wink in there to the fourth wall. Yeah, of course. But I mean, with the fourth wall, seamless transition here, but I'm going to point it out so it's less seamless. (laughs) You studied comedy writing with Second City, which is so cool. Yeah, it was very different. I, like I said, I'd done my English degree and I'd gone to work in corporate communications in the financial sector for a number of years. And then I'd always loved comedy. I used to write plays and scripts in high school and university. And then mm-hmm. I just kind of put that aside when I went to work and I was writing press releases and speeches and things like that. And for my 25th birthday, my mother enrolled me in Second City Comedy Writing. And I think she was trying to lure me back to my original love of writing fiction. And I went into it and it it was just 
so much fun. It's fabulous. They have a great training center here in Toronto. I think they have one in Chicago as well. And I didn't end up pursuing a career related to that, not really, but it was incredibly useful for communications writing. And now it's proved to be incredibly useful for novel writing. It's just very, if anyone wants to check it out, I recommend it. Even if you're not into comedy writing, it's just really interesting because it's for little, it's for short sketches. It's specifically for the Second City stage. And they teach you things like, how are you establishing characters in the first 10 seconds of a sketch? How are you establishing scene if there's no props? And then, you know, you get rules like you're going to write the sketch and you need a joke at least twice a minute and you've got five minutes. So it's it's really tough writing. You need X number of characters. You need the characters' lines to be different lengths or, you know, they'll give you the character and say, you're going to have a character who's like this, write a scene around them. So it's really just for anyone who wants to write anything. It's really great writing exercises and incredibly tough. And then you go off to do other writing and you're like, wow, that was really useful. So I did that for a while and it was tremendous, tremendous fun. Oh, that's wonderful. So did you do like theater in high school and and college? I wrote for the theater. We had a local regional drama competition when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And it was run by this company and all the high school students competed. So I competed three years in a row, never on the stage. I'm not an on the stage person, but I wrote three different scripts three years in a row. And I run a, won a couple of awards for that. And then I did it again in university, wrote some scripts. And then kind of my segue back into creative writing was in 2018, I, I, I wrote a new script and I dusted it off and worked on it. And I sent it off to Writer's Digest. And then I said, oh, you've won the grand prize. Here's a trip to New York for the conference. And I was like, what? Wow. And that was tremendous, tremendous fun. So they gave me a nice little plaque and they invited me to their Writers Digest annual conference. And that kind of tipped me into novel writing because one of their conference panels was agents talking about how to pitch a novel. And I thought, well, I've got an idea I've been sitting on for a while. And then I went away and thought about it for a couple of years and out came Jane and Edward. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my gosh. It just makes me think like both the corporate side and the creative side with Anne with theater and stuff. It just, it seems like it's all a culmination of that, which is so cool. It comes together. Yeah. And, and someone else had a who, who read it had a nice phrase that, you know, it's nice that she takes the things from her life and keeps what she wants and drops other things, but she doesn't completely bin her life. You know what I'm saying? Like some mm-hmm. people, they say, well, I've wandered down this path and maybe this was the wrong path. And now I'm going to completely chuck it and try something new. And Anne doesn't do that. She's like, here's the relationships I want to keep. Here's the corporate side of me I want to keep. Mm-hmm. But here's the romantic side and the emotional side and the personal life that I need to work on. And it all kind of comes together. So, yeah. 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 So Jane and Edward was your debut novel. And now this one, Once Persuaded, Twice Shy, is, I mean, it's fun that it has twice in the title because it's your second, your second novel. I didn't even think of that. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Did your writing process change at all? You mentioned that there was a bit of a curve just with the the reimagining from classics. Did anything else change as you went through your second one? Well, I was definitely a pantser in my first one. Mm-hmm. Um, for people listening, if they know that term, a pantser versus a planner, if you're going by the seat of your pants. So my first novel, I was definitely going by the seat of my pants. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, I was really lucky. I got a wonderful agent, Melissa over at Stonesong. And then I got a wonderful editor at Berkeley, which is Kate Seaver. And there was a real learning curve there where they talked about what the reader responds to. And they pointed out, you know, the flaws in the structure. They really, they, they were really incredibly collaborative because they mm-hmm. know novels so well. And I was completely new to this genre and completely new to novel writing. So for my second book, I went back through all my emails 
emails with Kate and Melissa and I'm like, right, this is what I learned. So I'm going to keep that in my head while I'm plotting out my second book. So it's definitely Mm -hmm. more planned, which went smoother. But my process for doing the classics is just, like I said, certain things do not translate beat for beat just because our modern sensibilities are so different. Mm -hmm. What I look to do is I I look at who the heroine is and I look at who the hero is. And then I look at the major events in the original novel that affects their character. Mm -hmm. And then I take those major events and I kind of plot them out in a map. And I think, right, I need a modern equivalent for these handful of major events. And then connecting the events is kind of where I go freeform with my writing. I love that it started as as a pantser and then just slowly. I don't know if you follow V.E. Schwab at all on Instagram, but she's a plotter, like a major plotter. And so hearing all the different authors' ways of getting to the end of their book is so interesting. So I love it. I think it's great. There's no one way to get through a book. There's no one way to tackle a book. Everyone's got their different process. Is mm-hmm. Eaton Schwab, that's the secret life of Addie McGrew, yes. right? Yes. I just finished reading that. Yeah. <gasps> did you like it? What do you think? It did. It was very creative. It was very interesting the way she moves through time. Mm-hmm. I can see that she'd need to be a massive plotter to pull that off. That is that is a structural triumph. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you should check out more of her Instagram. I think she has stuff on her stories, but like the lengths of plotting that she takes is crazy like it's it's oh wow okay we don't have enough time to go into that <laughs> um but are you working on anything now i mean you're kind of in the press release of once persuaded twice shy what else are you working on I am working on a third novel. It's an original plot this time, so we'll see how that goes. I really have to be a plotter, not a pantser on that. But I would also love to do more retellings. I have it in my head to do a Mansfield Park retelling. I know nobody likes Mansfield Park, but I actually love that novel. And I feel like that's a novel where if you translate it to modern times, it would really affect how the plot changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because, you know, if the heroine stood up for herself, as modern women are, are a little more apt to do, then I think it would have some significant bearing on who she chooses in the end. I'd I'd love to get into that. Ooh, well, I think if anyone can do it, you can. Do you have a favorite independent bookstore that you would like to shout out where maybe our listeners can buy your books? Oh, that's so tough. There's so many great independent bookstores. It's just like I've ever since I started writing, I've been making pilgrimages to them all. Oh, um, yeah. Well, I have to give a shout out to the old Niagara bookshop, which is in Niagara on the lake. I don't know if they'll be carrying my book. I hope they will. But it is the most darling little bookshop in that town where the book is set. And unfortunately, I didn't actually include it in my book and I kick myself for doing that. And about 15 minutes down the road is the Thistle Cafe and Bookshop in St. Catharines. And they are absolutely lovely. And I'll be doing an event in Niagara on the Lake where I'm going to be doing a reading at a winery. And the Thistle Bookshop Cafe is coming out for that. So I have to give them a shout out for that. Oh, and I should give a shout out to Type Books, who is hosting my Toronto launch. So I've got I've got a village of independent bookshops here that are just so supportive and that I just adore. Oh, that's amazing. I'll make sure that they're tagged in the episode bio so people can link to all of that stuff. But do you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners? And if not, where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm mostly on Instagram. Melody Writes Edwards is, I believe, my handle. So come and say hello. I love it when readers reach out and say, I like this about the book or I just read the book. It's it's so lovely because writing can be a bit isolating and 
then it's amazing mm-hmm. to see the readers after. And I have a website, which I tried to update last night and accidentally broke. So that'll be going back <laughs> up again soon. Oh, no. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking about Once Persuaded, Twice Shy Melody. It was so nice to meet you. Well, it was lovely to meet you as well. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Did you know that you can support Novel Finds on Patreon? Patreon provides a space for artists to sustain ourselves by connecting us directly with our own communities. Being a patron also comes with special perks, like podcast merch. And there is quite a backlog of mini-episodes, book reviews, and more spanning from the beginning of Novel Finds. Join our bookish community and become a patron today by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Novel Finds Pod. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Novel Finds, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books, our favorite books, and everything in between. Our second book in the Jane Austen double feature author chats is Relative Strangers, a sense and sensibility reimagining by A.H. Kim. Hello, A.H. Kim. How are you doing today? Hi, Julia. I am doing awesome. I just got back from a writer's conference where I met so many amazing authors. And so I'm just like on a high, like I can't believe I met all these people. So and I'm super excited to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on. What authors did you meet? Tell us about the conference. I know that's not one of the questions we have, but I want to hear more. Oh, so I got to meet like Christy Tate, who wrote The Group, which was a a Reese Witherspoon pick. I got to see again, I've met her before, Kirsten Chen, who wrote Counterfeit, which was also a Reese's Witherspoon pick. I got to see Alexander Chi, who's like a beautiful writer and sort of an icon in the writing community. I mean, I literally could go on for like it was amazing and so like when you meet your heroes and you meet all these like very successful writers it's so inspiring and Mm -hmm. it's like I feel so blessed that I'm able to to write and meet these people so it was great it was so fun it's like you know it's like walking down the red carpet at the um, Oscars or something like because you're meeting like all these celebrities but they're celebrities in the writing world so they're not nearly as glamorous (laughs) (laughs) nor do they have to be (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) oh I love that also I mean surround yourself with Reese Witherspoon picks, who knows, maybe you'll be next, right? No, I was like, give me a little bit of your magic, please. Right. Just rub my shoulder a little bit. Maybe it'll come off. So we are here to talk about Relative Strangers, which is your retelling of Sense and Sensibility. Could you give us a brief synopsis of it and a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So Sense and Sensibility, you know, is, is a Jane Austen classic. And I've, I've talked about how it's a modern retelling of it. And then people often say like, oh, I haven't read the original. Like they can't read my book if they haven't read the original. And I'm like, you do not have to have read the original to like get my book. So it's really a sister story. It's the story of an older sister, Eleanor, who is, you know, very kind of proper and plays by the rules and is very responsible. And kind of the younger sister, Amelia, who, you know, is a former Food Network kind of star. She's glamorous and kind of a little bit ditzy. And she's run into some problems with the law. So she kind of like hides and hangs out with her sister and her mother. And the mother, she's been recently widowed 
widowed and she was living in the family house, but all of a sudden was kicked out because there was this secret firstborn son who was born in Korea who comes and takes over the house. And so these three women are forced to live in this like little cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And of course they find love, they find themselves and they find all sorts of just like adventures in their life. Yeah. Oh, it's such a fun story. Um, I haven't read Sense and Sensibility. I've seen the movie, but I haven't read it. So I was like, ooh, this is fun. So I had like a very vague understanding of how the story went. And I was just like, oh, nice. I like it. So I can 100% attest you do not have to read Sense and Sensibility in order to understand. Yeah. It's one of those things where there's like so many layers to the book. So if you've read Sense and Sensibility, or if like me, you have rewatched that movie, 10 gazillion times and you memorize every line, then there are like little kind of like inside jokes, you know, based on the original Mm -hmm. book or the original Mm -hmm. book's characters' names or, you know, little lines that reflect what happens in the original book. So if you are a fan of Jane Austen, then they're they're like little Easter eggs. They're just like little treats. But if you, you know, if it's just a book that you've picked up and you've never read Sense and Sensibility, you've never seen any of the movies, you'll still enjoy the story because the story itself is, you know, a sweet story. Yeah, it's timeless. It's why people are doing tons of reimaginings of classic stories. It's because they're classic, they're timeless. They have all the stories that like we know and love, but looking at it at maybe a different perspective or adding a modern twist to it and stuff like that. It's great. Exactly. Exactly. I think sometimes the classics scare people off because Mm -hmm. the language is different than the language we use now in the sense it's maybe a little bit drier or richer or something. Their conversations are not the same kinds of conversations we have. And so people, I think, sometimes are put off by that. But the storylines themselves, as you said, are timeless. Yeah, of course. When you picked Sense and Sensibility, is it because it's your favorite of Jane Austen's works? You know, it's like, how do you pick a favorite? I know. A favorite author. So I don't know that it's my favorite. You know, Pride and Prejudice is many people's favorite. And that mm-hmm. has such wonderful characters in, in Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy. And I actually really love Persuasion because, you know, that's got kind of like the second chance romance. It's like the older and wiser woman. You know, it's got a lot of deep themes there. But really, I pick Sense and Sensibility because I love the movie so much. And I'm, you know, I don't know if this is the right thing to admit in front of like an audience of readers, but sometimes movies are my gateway drug to books. Mm -hmm. So I didn't read a lot of Jane Austen before I started watching Jane Austen based movies and, you know, miniseries. And I was like, oh, these are great stories. Now I want to read the books Mm because I think I was intimidated. I thought that the books would be dry or the books would be hard to read. But it was when I was older and I watched the movies and I thought, I love this movie so much. I could watch it a million times. Now I want to read the book. So the the movie version with Kate Winslet and Emma Thompson. It's like my comfort watch, you know. So every time I'm just feeling sad or I'm feeling tired, I'll just cue that up and watch it. And I've just watched it a million times. And so after I finished my first book and I was, you know, for aspiring writers out there, you have to send out these query letters to agents to try to get representation to be published. So I was sending out all these query letters for my first book and not getting any responses. Mm -hmm. And also I was feeling pretty 
pretty miserable. And I was, you know, eating my like pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Oh, you know? oh. And I was like, and I thought, okay, I'm going to watch my comfort movie, Sense and Sensibility. And a bit of advice that a lot of authors give is like, while you're waiting for your first book to take off, just write your second book. So I was like, okay, I'll just write my second book. And I thought, and I'll write it based on my comfort movie. You know, it was like my comfort write. I call it my comfort write because it was just so fun to write. Oh my gosh, I love that. I have never heard that advice before. I'm, I mean, it makes sense though. If you're waiting, you don't want to just like sit there and dwell on it. So then you just move into your next thing. That's brilliant. Okay. So you are watching this movie. You decide, ooh, I want to retell this story. I want to write it out. Were there any challenges that you found as you were doing that? I feel like the story has so many levels and has sort of subplots and stuff like that. So I was really trying to sort of distill it down sort of to the essential elements. And so like, mm-hmm. why are these characters behaving the way they are? And so what I did was I actually wrote like these little first person bios for each of the characters. So it was like, hi, my name is Eleanor and I'm the older sister. I'm the responsible one. I'm the one who gets things done. You know, so like I kind of wrote this little bio from her perspective to get into her brain. And Mm -hmm. I did that for all of the characters so that I could kind of get the essence of what motivates them. And once I did that, then the story kind of wrote itself. But, you know, the way that a novel is written, it's not written from like each of the characters' individual perspectives. It's kind of told, at least in Jane Austen's world, it's told from the third person's perspective. So you kind of see the outside of them. So I had to go sort of on the inside first to really understand their motivations. Do you have a favorite bio that you wrote that you're like, oh, man, I can't wait to just dive into this character? Yeah. So my favorite bio was the protagonist or the um, narrator, Amelia. In the in Sense and Sensibility, the character's name is Marianne or Marianne, mm-hmm. but I changed her name to Amelia. And like, I do have a younger sister. I'm actually staying with her right now. And, you know, like it's the story is not too different from our relationship. You know, I'm the older one. I'm the responsible one, the one who gets things done. And my younger sister is more glamorous. And, you know, she's led an interesting, adventurous life. And so it's natural to want to tell the story from your own perspective. Mm -hmm. So Eleanor would be the easier character to write, but it's so much more fun to imagine being a different person. So I wrote it from Amelia's perspective and she is, she's just such a fun person. She's game for anything. She makes mistakes and she's like, you know, oops, you know, like I shouldn't have done that. And so hers was a fun perspective to write. And then that translated into how the whole book was structured, um, you know, from her perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned you have a sister. Were there any bits from your own, like, being sisters that made it into the book? Yes, there are. Oh, well, man. just like my first book. So my first book was in some ways, in large part, based on my relationship with my brother who has mm-hmm. since passed away. And so I always say about that book, everything in the book is true and nothing in the book is true. So like conversations, speeches, things that happen in that book are for the most part based on things that have happened in real life. And yet then like the whole arc of the story and, you know, like the motivations and all those things, those are all made up. You know, like the people in the book are far more like nefarious and scheming and undermining than, you know, my family is in real life. But that's what makes the book interesting. So similarly, in this book, Relative Strangers, a lot of the the conversations or some of the events are based on things that happened in real life. But then when you string them together, it's not at all our real lives. So like, if you know my family, you'll be like, oh, I remember that event. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, I love that. So it's like, that's another layer. It's not just Jane Austen. It's also the Kims. Exactly. I know. And so, yeah, I always make sure my family reads my books before they're published so that they can like stop the publications. if They're really upset by them. That's amazing. And have they, have they ever been like, oh no, I don't want this? No, the funny thing is, especially my first book, in some ways, it covers a lot of difficult terrain. And I was worried that, you know, my, my family would be like, you can't, you can't talk about this. But they, my, my family members are my biggest fans. Um, it's so sweet. Like my dad, who recently passed away, he would like buy copies of my books for all of his friends. And they're like, oh. like 85 year old Korean people, right? And I was like, have you read the book, dad? It's kind of like, it's got some sex scenes. In it, you know? <laughs> it's not things that I necessarily want your friends to read but he was just so proud of me yeah it's just lovely oh that's amazing I love it when families are so supportive like that that's wonderful so your first book you mentioned covers some hard topics this second one also covers some hard topics there's a lot of loss and grief and recovery and so I was just wondering what made you think of setting relative strangers primarily at a cancer retreat center so in the original book, the women are sort of tossed out of their you know, manor home mm-hmm. and they stay in a cottage that's owned by a distant relative. And of course, a cottage in English times is not like just like a little shack. It's, you know, right. it's, yeah. it's like a multi-room house. But anyway, so I was trying to think of a similar situation where this family who lives in sort of a very wealthy part of the San Francisco Bay Area, like what would be the equivalent of a cottage for them? And I went back and also because this is a comfort book, a comfort read. I was thinking like, where was a place where I was just so nourished and felt taken care of and Mm -hmm. where I was at kind of with nature. And I am a 20 year cancer survivor and I have actually been to a cancer retreat center that was life changing. And so the place that I set the book is based on a real place. It's a real cancer retreat center in Northern Virginia. And, you know, you would think, oh gosh, you know, cancer, that's going to be really depressing or sad. Mm-hmm. It was the most life affirming and beautiful place that I've ever been. So it was, it felt pretty natural to me to set it in that place. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounded idyllic. The cottage itself was very fun because I mean, you show up and it's during a storm and everything is leaking. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Everything's leaking like the freaking Titanic, I say. (laughs) Yeah. As a girl, I really always loved books about nature. One of my favorite books was My Side of the Mountain, which is about a boy who, it was during the Depression and they were very poor. And so he left his home in New York City and just went to the Catskills and carved out a house out of a tree. And I just thought, wow, that would be amazing to just like live on the land and have to like forage for your own food. Food and like hunt for animals and like, like, how do you just live in nature with mm-hmm. none? So I just loved giving these women like this. I mean, they're not in nature. They just live in a leaky house, but just, you know, they, they go from having everything in this big mansion of a house in, in the San Francisco Bay area to basically having nothing and starting over. And how do, you know, how do they live that way? So mm-hmm. I love that those kinds of stories. Yeah. I mean, they are kind of in nature considering there's no Wi-Fi and no cell phone signal. <laughs> 
Exactly. And yeah, there there are characters in it that like love bird watching. They're bird nerds. And it's like growing the giant garden. It was really cool too because Amelia having a food background, I feel like there was a, a portion of the book that was just all centered around describing food and just her excitement about it. And I was like, yes, I can get behind this because I also love food. And so then helping out in the kitchen and helping the chef that was there were really nice moments. Yeah. Well, I join you in the food loving category. <laughs> Every time somebody says like, oh, I'm not really into food. I kind of look at them a little bit like, really? That's kind of like saying you're not into life. I mean, like right. food is one of the greatest joys in life for me. I loved writing all of the food descriptions. And, you know, I watch a lot of Food Network or a lot of those food competitions. Mm-hmm. So, um, And I do eat out a lot. So I loved writing all of those food descriptions. But I mean, it also goes back to the source material, which is sense and sensibility. So so, you know, the older sister is like, you know, she's like, she's common sense. Mm-hmm. And the younger sister is more sensual. She's all about feeling and, you know, like flowers and nature and like all that stuff. And so I feel like of all the, you know, senses, taste is like such a wonderful sense. And so I tried to make Amelia very sensual in terms of like, she really appreciates food. Like, you know, the, when she goes to the um, cancer retreat center for the first time and she like takes a bite of the muffin and like her eyes roll back in her, you know, sockets. And she's like, oh my God. You know, she's just like loving every moment of it. So I tried to make her as sort of an appreciator of life as much as possible. I think that went through. I think it definitely comes off as that. So what were your favorite scenes to work on outside of writing the food? Yeah, the food scenes were fun. I also love, again, this is sort of a riff off the original. So in the original story, Amelia, I'm sorry, Marianne is the Amelia character. She goes for a walk in the rain and she gets drenched. And then like, you know, she she gets saved by a man on a white horse and stuff. So the book opens with her, uh, with my character, Amelia, getting caught in the rain mm-hmm. and she gets saved by a man in a white truck. But, you know, so like I, I love taking source material and kind of updating it and riffing on it a little bit. So there are a number of those types of scenes where if you are a Jane Austen fan, you'll recognize this as the, oh, this is that scene. I mean, a lot of the scenes are just brand new and I just made them up. But a few of them are based on actual scenes from the, yeah. From the book. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, so follow me here. Relative Strangers gets made into a movie. Yes, my dream. Do do you have certain actors in mind for different characters? Yes, absolutely. And I I, I feel like as I write, I love movies as well. Mm -hmm. So I imagine like the the movie plays in my brain as I'm writing these books, these stories. And so when I was writing slash rewriting or revising Relative Strangers, I was a huge fan of um, Hamilton, the music. Okay. And so for Amelia, I kept thinking of the actress Philippa Sue, who plays um, Eliza. I think Mm -hmm. she plays Eliza. And so every time like Eliza would sing, you know, I'd be listening to the soundtrack. I would think that's that's Amelia. So that's one character. The other character that I sort of in my dream cast would be the character of Brandon. And so in the movie version, Colonel Brandon is played by Alan Rickman. And I love Alan. 
Alan Rickman. So it's hard to imagine anybody, you know, picking Alan Rickman's place. But in the movie, the character of Willoughby, who's kind of the sexy cad who breaks Marianne's heart, mm-hmm. is played by this man named Greg Wise. And so maybe this is like a spoiler. But what I love about the movie Sense and Sensibility is that Greg Wise plays the hottie and Emma Thompson plays like the reserved, quiet, older sister. Mm-hmm. But in real life, Emma Thompson and Greg Wise got married. <gasps> and I was like, yeah, Emma, you got the hottie. <laughs> Good for you. So I would love for Colonel Brandon, who's kind of the older staid character, to be played by Greg Wise. So that way, you know, when he's a young man, he plays the cat. He plays Willow. Yeah. And then as an older man, he plays Colonel Brandon. I thought that would be lovely. That would be lovely. Oh my gosh. I love this. Okay. I hope they reach out to you if they, well, they'd better reach out to you if they're going to make it into a movie. I Sometimes I just sit there and I like start scrolling like, you know, hot actresses and actors like who would be good for that role? Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. I love that. So taking a slight segue or a slight, maybe a different path before becoming an author, you studied law at both Harvard and Berkeley Law, which is amazing. How was that? What made you choose that path? So I'm an immigrant. So I I moved to the United States when I was two. And, you know, it's like the typical immigration story where, you know, my parents said goodbye to their families and didn't know if they would ever see them again in Korea. Mm -hmm. Because back then, you know, airlines, airline tickets were very expensive. And they come here to a country where they don't speak the language. They don't know anybody. It was a huge sacrifice. And it really was to give their children a better life. So a lot of us immigrant children, or first generation children feel a lot of pressure to kind of like make that sacrifice worth it. So if you look at my generation of immigrants, many of them are doctors or lawyers or engineers, like kind of those jobs that you can get, you know, you do well in school, then you get these jobs and then you do well because they're high paying or like, you know, generally high paying Mm -hmm. and you can have a good life. My generation of um, immigrants we're not encouraged to do things like entrepreneurship or, you know, the arts, anything that's risky that like depends a little bit on luck or depends a little bit on, you know, other people we weren't encouraged to do. So I was a good student, you know, in elementary and middle school and high school. And I think my parents wanted me to be a doctor, but I literally hated science and could not stand the sight of blood. I still cannot stand the sight of blood. And I thought, well, those are kind of things that would be problems in medical school. So I was looking for a plan B and I was a good writer. And I knew that being a writer was a good, a big part of being a lawyer. So that's how I I got into law school. And I was a lawyer until just two years ago when I finally decided to retire. Oh, wow. But yeah, I think I just, I think I think very logically and, you know, I'm a little bit competitive, so I like to win arguments. <laughs> so all of those things, I think, made for me to be a good lawyer, just like me not liking science and me not liking the sight of blood made me not well suited to be a doctor. Yeah, fair enough. That That is definitely a big component right there. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. How has it been? How is the switch? How is the retirement? And then now you get to pursue your creative things, but also you do have some lawyer stuff in Relative Strangers. 
Yes. So I always say like the irony of it is that I wrote both my first book and my second book when I was a full-time lawyer and Mm -hmm. I was raising two kids. Oh my gosh. Like my life was super, super busy, but I think sometimes, you know, one of my favorite sayings is if you want something done, ask somebody busy because people who are busy just like have priorities, they get stuff done. They have their checklists. And so I was really, I developed an interest in becoming a novelist when I was in my late 40s. And I just like jumped in and just started writing. And and I had this goal that I wanted to be published by the time I was 50. You know, I was like 47 when I made that goal. So that was really not a realistic goal. But I was published by the time I was 54 which is not bad. Okay. But anyway, so I I just basically wrote in my free time and on the weekends. But actually, since I took an early retirement, you know, my father grew ill and I had to take care of him and then he Mm -hmm. passed away and I've been taking care of his estate and all that stuff. So I actually haven't written since I've retired. And so again, it goes back to the adage of if you want something done, ask someone busy. I'm technically not busy anymore and I'm not getting anything done. (laughs) I feel like I'm constantly just spinning my wheels. Nah, it'll come back. There'll be a moment where you're just like, oh, I like this idea. This is this is what's going to happen. <laughs> I do think that being a lawyer is actually really good training for being a writer in the sense that my job as a lawyer was to write. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like novels, I, but I wrote like legal briefs or I wrote legal analyses. So every day I had to write something. So I, you know, I think a lot of people get kind of frozen in front of a blank screen and, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, you know, a blank piece of paper, but I had to do that every day. So you know, to say, oh, okay, now you have to write 80,000 words for a novel. You know, for some people that would, that would be torture. For me, it was like, okay, let's start. And I would crank it out. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So there in, in Relative Strangers, it's more of a focus kind of on, on family law. Yeah. So there's a little, like both my first book and my second book, and I'm working on my third book, all have some legal element to it, mm-hmm. but they're not like legal thrillers. They're not like John Grisham type. No, 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 no. Right. <laughs> I would say they're mostly like family dramas, but with a legal element. Mm-hmm. And um, I was actually talking about this topic with a friend of mine who's a doctor and she often puts like medical elements in her book, but you know, her books aren't like medical thrillers, but they, you know, they always have something medical in them. Yeah. And I, and She said, do you ever like struggle with like how exact you have to be? So like some of the stuff, some of the legal stuff that happens in my book, like I'm sure like a trust and estates lawyer would be like, no, that wouldn't happen because, you know, the law really says this, so, you know, like whatever. Um, I, I I do research it enough so that it's not laughably wrong, but it's, they're used more as like little like hooks or details of the book as opposed to like 100% accurate, like legal analyses. Perfect. So do, not, do not count on my novels for legal advice. <laughs> Well, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to be like, is that like the stuff that you practiced when you when you were a practicing lawyer? Because I don't really know. No. So I worked for I worked for a company and I practiced a very kind of like dry kind of law. Mm-hmm. I, I, there would be no nobody would want to write a book about that. <laughs> for sure. Amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, you're on to book number three. How has your writing process changed between each of your each of your novels? 
Yeah. So my first book, which actually never got published, it was a YA book. It was a complete pantser because you know I, I just like wrote it and it, it, it showed because it really had no plot, which is probably why I never got an agent and it never got published because it was just, you know, just a lot of random scenes. And then my first novel that got published, A Good Family, I finally understood like you need to have a structure. You need to have like an inciting incident at the beginning. You need to have, you know, certain climax and arcs and things like that. So that one had a little more structure. And then, of course, with this book, Relative Strangers, because it's based on another book, in some ways, the structure was sort of built preordained. Mm-hmm. I kind of knew what some of the key plot elements were. So it was, that one was much more structured. And the one that I'm working on now is probably even more structured, just because I know how readers kind of are expecting things to happen. And so you need to kind of like feed that need. You yeah. can't just like randomly put words on a page. <laughs> Is it another adaptation or is this an original? It's an original. So my first published book, A Good Family, was kind of like a domestic thriller. You know, mm-hmm. it was it had sort of darker elements. I mean, half of it takes place in a woman's prison. It's about sort of family members who kind of lie to each other. So and then this book, as I said, is kind of my comfort write, my comfort read. So it's a lot lighter in tone and sort of like kinder in terms of its relationships between family members. And so my next book is a little bit of a return to the first one in terms of it's like darker. It explores kind of harder relationships than this than the relative strangers. And it involves a woman who disappears and who might be dead. Oh, okay. All right. We'll see. Yeah. Well, we're very excited for all of these books. Do you have any favorite independent bookstore or places you'd like to shout out where listeners may be able to pre-order or buy your books? Absolutely. I'm a huge, huge indie bookseller fan. And I used to live in San Francisco and I recently moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I'm so lucky in Michigan to have three independent bookstores. So Literati is the store that I'm going to have my launch party at. So my book launches on April 2nd. And because my first book came out in the pandemic, I didn't have any events. I didn't Mm -hmm. get to, you know, have any bookstore events. I didn't get to do any signings. It was really, you know, so sad. So I'm super excited to have a party at Literati. I'm going to bring cake. I might bring some bubbly. It'll, It'll be a, it'll be a party. But in addition to that, there's a wonderful sort of family-owned bookstore called Book Suite. And then there's a kind of a smaller like family-owned chain called Schuler's. So those are the three independent bookstores in Ann Arbor and you can pre-order from them. And then my second kind of home is in San Francisco and I'm having a second launch like my West Coast launch party at Green Apple Books on the Park. So again, again, another wonderful bookstore. And I was recently on my Instagram, I was able to post all of my tour dates. And so any of those bookstores that are offering, you know, tour stops for me, I would strongly encourage you to buy from them. Or if you have a, if you're lucky enough to have an independent bookstore in your town, it actually makes more difference for you to ask them to pre-order it because that shows that there is interest around the country, not just Mm -hmm. the places where I have friends or the places where I used to live. But, you know, if there's, I just got back from Kansas City. So if Rainy Day Books gets pre-orders, then they'll be like, well, we've already got three pre-orders. We may order, well, order a box of them. I would love that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Pre-order from your favorite bookstore. (laughs) 
Thank you so much. Do you have any final thoughts and where can people find you on social media? Oh, I am. The easiest thing to do is actually to go to my website, which is ahkim.net. And then there are the links to my social media. So (laughs) I I always forget, like on Facebook and Instagram, I'm either ahkimwriter or I'm A.H. Kim author. And I can always, I, I always mix up which one I am on those two. So those are the two, two platforms that I use. Uh, I'm not on X or Twitter or TikTok or any of those things because you really don't want to see me dancing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. I was so, I'm so glad to get to talk to you about this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to talk about my new book because it really is a friend of mine who read it said it's like a it's like a warm hug of a book. It is a warm hug. I agree. All right. Thank you so much. Right. Yes. Thank you. Well, we heckin' did it, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to rate and review the show and share it with your bookish friends and family. For more content, join our community on Patreon and follow Novel Finds on Instagram. Details can be found in the episode description. Thank you for being a novel friend. See y'all next time. Thank you.